Hello, Logic friends. This episode of the Logic Podcast is brought to you by Cinesis.io. These guys have been my reseller for over 15 years, and we could not do what we do without them. They're fantastic partners, no matter what size your business. To find out more about their remote workflow solutions, check them out at Cinesis.io. If you haven't signed up for the forum yet, do it now at forum.logic.tv. It is the number one place for flame artists. We have nearly a thousand users, lightning fast response times, and over 120,000 page views per month. Plus, you'll get access to the Logic Discord server for real-time audio and video chat. Sign up for free at forum.logic.tv. My theory is that Apple is actually using the processors in those uh, Air in the AirPods to mine crypto. Uh, <laughs> I mean, because they have like a billion of them around and it's very like they only can process very small amounts. But when they combine those all together in the data centers that they have strategically placed next to, you know, Project Echelon, like sensor arrays mm -hmm. uh, all around the world, it makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, think about it. Like I, I have no proof of this, but I have all the proof I need because I, I can read about it on my own blog. <laughs> By way of hello. <laughs> How you doing, man? Not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, I got a notification from that greatest of all things in the world, Facebook. Yesterday was the one-year anniversary of our RenderDome battle. Oh, wow. Yes, right? I mean, now we can do that thing that you know people our age do and go like, oh my God, a year? Like, can you believe a year went by? And what a year it was. <laughs> that was some of the most fun I have ever had behind a flame was doing the RenderDome. That was a lot of fun. And... I don't think, well, you know, no, we did that podcast, you, me, and Amanda, and Brian, and mm -hmm. Randy, and everybody, but you and I never really talked about that. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I was an absolute nervous wreck. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Like, and full disclosure for the uh, for the, the podcast audience at home, I don't think you and I had ever met, like, we've never met, like, in person, right? I don't think so. We might have, like, yeah. there's a... Ch were you ever at one of the frame store user groups? Yes, I was. I was at. I was definitely at one because I presented. Okay. So I know I was at that one. Right. I think I was at one more. So we've yes, been I in the same one room more. probably, but yeah, we yeah, never really. We probably side eyed each other. Right. Like, who's that? Yeah, yeah. Bet you that's another Andy. Everybody named Andy. <laughs> Getting in on my brand. Yeah. Damn it, <laughs> my brand. <laughs> I was. I was a nervous wreck. There is that undeniable like thing. All, all of us flame artists have where like we're the most confident you know people in in the world and we know everything we've done everything we've seen it all uh until of course we then have to prove that in front of our right. in front of our peers who are all like i tell every guest i have on logic live when we're doing our run through mm -hmm. is like i tell them take your batch schematic and zoom in like zoom in obnoxiously oh, yeah. close because everybody at home is wants to read everything so that they can a you know learn mm -hmm. and then b go oh that's that's not how i would have that. I, I, no that that's ridiculous well now i know what he's made of i mean i feel like the reality of that is as much as it might have existed when we were getting started doesn't seem to be true but it is nonetheless very much in my bones that fear that everyone's yeah. just like looking at every single node and being like no no yeah. not the way to do it's, that you're right. It's not. It's it's certainly like an imagined paranoia, or it's something that we bring to the table. You know, like you create your own demons, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Andy just gave me like the most knowing nod of like, oh yes, 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 I know that. Um, yeah, I think we bring that to the the table. Let's just get the important stuff out of the way. Okay. 
horizontal reels or vertical reels? Whatever it defaults to now, I don't even think about it. I was, for the longest time, I had the real orientation that according to my friend Rod, who taught me many things, was true to how film moves through like a moviola. Because he used to be like an effects editor, like cutting so Uh or something like that. That often got hard because it was like left to right, like heads were on the right and tails were on the left, which is sort of like the opposite of the way you think of a timeline. But I kept Mm -hmm. forgetting if it was correct or not. And then uh, after a couple of years of that, Kirk Baldwin made fun of me for not using vertical reels. So I did that for Mm -hmm. a while to spite him. And I stuck with That's out of character for him too. I got to say. What? No, yeah, <laughs> Say, saying things to, yeah. <clears throat> um, so I, yeah, then I went to vertical, and you know it was sort of staunchly vertical for a while, and probably overly difficult to Autodesk when they went to the anniversary edition because you know it was just one of those things. Vertical reels got a lot of short shrift in that sort of changeover, and now I literally just don't care. Like I, whatever it boots up as, fine. I think the uh, for the benefit of the of the younger listening audience, when Flame first you know was a thing, the the reels on the desktop uh, only existed. You couldn't even collapse the clips. You, all you had were these film strips of which you could see five frames, and the rest were just <laughs> off in the, the the metaverse or something. And you would yes, you would push right to go left to make the images go left. Mm-hmm. Or you you know it was it was absolutely bonkers. And I remember someone explaining this. It, the, uh, explaining it to me the same way as you just described. Well, this is how film goes through a moviola. Yeah. It's like, well, um, okay, yeah. uh, this is not Who film. does that help? <laughs> I don't have a moviola. I have no frame of reference yeah. for what you're talking about, but I just take it as gospel. Oh, yeah. Every now and again, someone would mess up my preferences, and it took me, like, I would have to sit there with a clip <laughs> and switch it back and forth, left to right, right to left, and be like, does this feel right? Does this feel right? So, yeah, I. that's actually one of the reasons I stuck with vertical, because top to bottom was always very clear. Like, okay, yeah, it's heads not are at the change, top. You hope. No confusion there. Yeah. Um, so it was easy. There's always that one guy, right, though, who's going to have, he's going to have the start of the clip at the bottom. Yeah. 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 I mean, that guy, he's probably got like the coolest tricks, that guy. Are you kidding? <laughs> guy owns us all. Okay. So uh, you're reels agnostic. It's more like reels indifferent at this point. You've moved on. Yeah. 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 Um, hotkeys, smoke, flame? Flame defaults, just what okay. the shop software ships with. I used to do goofy things like I used to for a while make it so the eraser button on the pen would pop out action layers and batch. Wow. Because there's a way to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the only reason I did that is I feel like I was on a forum sometime and one of the developers was like, yeah, you could even do this. And I was like, I'm going to do that. <clears throat> and it was nice. But at the end of the day, like, you know, you reset your user every couple of months anyway for various reasons. So it's just, I don't have time to go set new hotkeys. Amen. I don't know if you saw on on Discord the last couple of days, but Finn Yeager has been showing off that uh, Stream Deck now has foot pedals. Like they now sell a foot pedal attachment. And so it's like if you ever really wanted to live that dream of like, you want to go back to when the movie, the movie also had foot pedal operations, you know, yeah. for forward and reverse. So you could totally do that. If you really want to, if you really want to take that, your flaming to the next level. Yeah, uh, you got to incorporate three hotkeys, you know, with foot pedals. There was a while where I was convinced that if I could just get a sort of bass light style blackboard, just big clacky buttons, and you know, way too many, <laughs> that like that basically part of the problem with Flame losing sort of mental market share 
was that it did not command the sort of techie presence of a colorist who had this organ of various buttons that they could just be smashing all the time. And we were still stuck with a bunch of hotkeys. So I, yeah, I, at that time, I would have been really excited about foot pedals. Now I just like, I a, you know, one of these mechanical keyboards with the loud. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the same. <laughs> I love it. I was always amazed at the at the colorist set of panels. Mm-hmm. I was like, gee, I wonder how I can make this more efficient. Uh, oh, I know. 300 single purpose buttons. Yeah. Okay, that's great. And then, you know, that was when I was young and naive about the ways of the world and didn't realize that this very impressive console could command a hell of a lot more money, you know. Yeah. So, but you're living, you learn. So if you had to describe, uh, if you were going to do an elevator pitch on yourself, what kind of uh, a flame artist or visual effects artist are you? I am rather technical and very lazy. And that means I strive to make the simplest, most efficient solution to every problem I come across. That's brilliant. I was going to ask, so do those two things balance themselves out? <laughs> yeah, and they it's do. The, it's the yin and yang of my existence. I don't want to be yep. working hard at all. So I need to build a machine that will do most of the work for you. <laughs> When you were a kid, would you balance yourself? Like, would you lean back in your chair and try to balance like perfectly on two legs, mm-hmm. right? Just to see if you would fall. Yeah. Okay. And did you ever? Did you ever wipe out spectacularly in class, like, <laughs> like in a quiet like social studies class? Did, you, did your chair go crashing down? I I feel like I never fell in school, but I feel like I did this a fair amount at my house. Mm-hmm. I feel like my right. mom might have had some harsh words for me at some point. I was going to say, did it drive your parents crazy? Yeah. You know, in that sort of like eight-year-old way. But Oh, totally. Totally. I think that's when I told my mother that uh, there was no God. So why, why, why does it matter if I fold my socks? It says on, it says on your LinkedIn page, which I believe you, you set up and you manage. Yeah. Did you start your career at Imaginary Forces? Yes, sort of. So my first job quote in the industry was doing video game cinematics using Studio Max. Oh, wow. And I did that for about a year. I worked on Sonic Adventure 2 and uh, a Pac-Man party game. Nice. And it's incredibly hard to find any of my work. (laughs) (laughs) I found one, like, complete playthrough of (laughs) Sonic Adventure 2. It's, like, three hours long. And then there's these, like, 20-second slices. And I was like, oh, yeah, I I did that. And I, I really thought that that was going to go like tragically bad. Like you found a three-hour playthrough of Sonic Adventure Two, but the only thing they fast-forwarded yeah. or skipped through was you'd see like the first second of the cinematic till the skip button came on. Yeah, exactly. Just like no, 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 no. That was <laughs> please. I really liked that animation. So I did that for about a year, and then some friends of mine worked over at Imaginary Forces, and they had just wrapped up all the murder sequences for Minority Report. Okay. All the stuff, all the Tom Cruise is moving the image files around. They did all the weird blurry images. So they did all that stuff and they needed somebody to back it up and run archives. I was jobless at the time, having sort of burned out in my CG life. They brought me in to see if I could hack it. I was the night shift just running DLT tapes on an Inferno. They take about an hour and a half to run. So then you just go over, they had a flame too, that thing archived in 20 minutes because it was all, you know, SD files. Mm-hmm. And then I just tried to learn flame. And then, you know, my boss, Clyde, and my other supervisor, Rod, would make me do stuff. And eventually I got okay at it. Nice. Do you remember like your, 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 your breakthrough moment, like that, 
that first job, that first maybe session with a client or something like that, where you kind of made that jump from the night guy that they would give stuff to, to someone who's now going to maybe earn a living doing this? I remember my first really big screw up. I don't remember my first really big success. <laughs> um, I had been, what was it? I was tasked with sort of updating some small graphic, you know, just kind of an A over B thing that had been done in After Effects. I was new, you know, I didn't know very much. So I, I, I did my best. My best was not up to snuff. And they put me on a call with a client. <laughs> you know, you learn, these, you learn all the lessons the hard way. So the client said, why doesn't this look like it used to look? And I said, because the guy who did it doesn't work here anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and neither do you. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, if I wasn't the just cheapest person by about... 300% at that point, they would have kicked me. But yeah, that, that was not the worst call I've ever been on, but it did. It was the first worst call I ever. So I remember that. And then, you know, years later, I remember Andrew Nichol remembered my name when I was working on Lord of War. But I think that was as much convenience of having the same name as him. <laughs> but that was nice. I remember the first big screw up I had at my first like daytime, like big daytime flame artist job was we had four infernos on, you know, connect on the, on the, I'm doing air quotes here, but on the network, mm -hmm. I needed to install a font. And rather than go to like engineering, cause I knew how to install a font. I typed the command, you know, it was like, it was like, you start flame, you put the font where it's supposed to go. And then you like, it was like start inferno minus minus F or something like that, mm -hmm. or cap F or something. And for the benefit of the youngsters at home, back in those days, <laughs> What Flame would do at the, to install a font, it would go like, oh, okay, so you want to start Flame and install a font. Fine. Okay. The first thing I'm going to do is delete all the fonts, and then I'm going to reinstall all of them. So it took a ridiculously long amount of time. And, you know, if you had like, you know, 500 fonts and you were just adding one, <laughs> you know, it was... Whatever. I mean, it made a certain logical sense, but now because I didn't go to engineering and I didn't ask anybody, I just assumed that this was all set up, you know, mm -hmm. the same as every other Flame or Inferno I had been on. You put all your fonts and user discrete fonts and you do this command and then you go, no, the fonts existed on some other, you know, drive server somewhere okay. that for whatever yeah. reason was not mounted at the time. Ah. So I go and launch Flame or Inferno with minus F. And it systematically deletes all 1,500 fonts in the entire company. <laughs> and there's nowhere to install them from again. So now no one has font, None. No one has any Just fonts. None of the I've been there like a day. Like it was like my first day. And so I, I had to go and find somebody and then explain what I did. And they, you know, I think it was that weekend. I spent the entire weekend. They had, they did have one like, what, what exabyte tape or something, mm -hmm. you know, with, with all the fonts on them. I had to install them one at a time with that command because i didn't know anything about scripting or whatever right it literally took all weekend to do and it's the scars inside the bruises inside that don't heal you know i i feel like though you get through a few of those experiences and then in any other moment you can look back on them and be like this is fine yeah <laughs> <laughs> yep totally and then making my way up linkedin list here you then went freelance after a couple of years at imaginary forces mm -hmm. Did you feel like you had like you couldn't go any further where you were? That was that was my rationale at the Why time. Why make the jump? My friend Rod was the lead over there. Clyde had moved over to NBC. I felt like if I stayed there for another five years, I'd do you know another five years worth of main title sequences. And IF used Flame in sort of 
interesting ways. So I learned a ton there, but it was also like very not like anyone else used the software. So I wanted to sort of go out. How do you mean? Broadly speaking, Flame would be used to conform a title sequence, but you wouldn't conform it as a timeline. You'd put all the layers into an action sequence because it always they'd always be these sort of seamless things that had to merge together. And you have five or six designer CG animators rendering you pieces of it that all slot in and are supposed to seamlessly work together, which they never do. <laughs> and designers being designers, after they send you the one that's gotten approved, they sit there and they tinker with it. So when a note comes back, they render you a new one, and it's different. Not different like, okay, we spelled the actor's name right different. It's different like they changed a bunch of stuff. So a lot of what I was doing was just taking the old, mostly correct piece of the title sequence and putting the, you know, rotoing the new fix over and working it in so there's a lot of stuff like that but there wasn't a lot of you know your sort of bog standard we've got a bunch of people we need them keyed and put on this background and here's a cg element so i wanted to go out and do some of that stuff mm-hmm. kind of got to how did you make your way to new zealand oh yeah so i've been freelancing for a couple of years uh, just kind of bouncing around and then at the time my wife was working on melrose place costumer and the melrose hours were really crazy Like she would have to wake up at like three in the morning on Mondays, go to work and they'd shoot, you know, 14 hour days. And because of the sort of union rules, the days would roll over. So she'd start later and later and later through the week till they would get to what they called Fratter Day, which is where they'd start at like 4 p.m. on a Friday (laughs) and shoot all night. So at the time, I was just kind of randomly, jokingly, not, I don't know, semi-seriously applying for all sorts of jobs and this gig in New Zealand for a department head was available. And I remember telling my wife, I just applied for a job in New Zealand. She was like, great, I'm ready to be done with this job. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, I landed the job. So we picked up everything and went all the way to New Zealand. And what kind of stuff did you work on when you were there? It was funny because, you know, people have weird ideas about what New Zealand is and isn't, you know, and it's realistically, it's a country of 4 million, 4.1 million people. That's like a thousand miles away from anything else. But it's also where Weta is and where they have like a huge and thriving film department. So it's got this very, like half the commercials I do would be these things I'd bang together. They'd hand me one PSD file and I'd have to basically animate it four hours and it would be (laughs) on air that afternoon. Like that was my Friday was doing these like electronics TV commercials with just little weird animations. And then you'd get these, you know, pretty big budget jobs just floating through that were sort of weird and interesting. I met a lot of, a lot of neat characters down there. I was there once for a shoot and it was absolutely like some of the most breathtaking country I've ever, ever seen. We were down in the South Island mm-hmm. in Queenstown, I guess. Yeah. It was, it was great. We, we were there for a pharmaceutical shoot because the the client or the agency, they wanted to go somewhere that didn't look like the American Southwest or look like LA or Florida right. or New York or whatever. So they find something that looks like, you know, Rivendell. Or, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and the location that everyone ended up agreeing upon didn't have any mountains and it. it could have been anywhere. Like, right. it, you know, it, it, it was, abs- there was no reason to be there. Well, there was one reason to be there and that was everyone wanted to go to New Zealand. There's, yes, other than that one, absolutely. I, one thing I learned when I got to New Zealand, we were quoting on a job and the, we were sort of 
the other flame op that was there was quoting the job and we were sort of discussing it. And of course the job is no money. And what they want to do is they want to fly to South Africa and film lions for a TV commercial, but they don't have enough money to do that. Right. So we're pitching how to do this with stock footage. But of course what ends up happening, because why would you not do this? They find the money to go film lions because basically people just want a cool vacation out of it. Like, Mm -hmm. So I feel like that's one of the reasons why, you know, I mean, that's why Santa Monica does so well, right? Like, yep. People just want a nice vacation along with finishing a TV commercial. You know, there's there's a reason there's not such a thriving post-production business in, you know, up where I live. (laughs) (laughs) Although it's nice here. Maybe it's right. Yeah, right. I like it. I once went on a shoot to Cape Town Mm -hmm. for a toothpaste commercial where we shot in a bathroom. We rented a house. They rented a house, shot a shot in a bathroom, and there was no dialogue. It was all voiceover. So they just needed like a North American looking white woman. So they found someone from somewhere in Europe. Yeah. And we were literally went, we rented this house, found the bathroom, put a blue screen out the window. But yeah, yeah. you know, I'm sure that there were financial reasons why everybody went to South Africa. Well, there, we uh, yeah, there's all sorts of those like tax benefits and it's pretty funny. But yeah, so much of it is just tied to like cool place to go on vacation. Yeah, exactly. What would you say is your your favorite thing to do uh, in the in the in the realm of visual effects, flame post production? I like getting shots started that are confusing and tricky. I don't like finishing those shots. Mm-hmm. You know, when you've got to sort of start pulling camera tracks and figuring out things that might work, and just I like figuring all the stuff out. Once I've got it figured out, it's like the the kind of the air is let out of it. And then I just, of course, have to do all the things nicely versus just kind of go, (laughs) yeah, well, if you just track this and you project that and you do this, then it'll all come together. But of course, the legwork (laughs) of sitting there and rotoing some guy's arm or what have you always sort of deflates the shots in the end. So Mm -hmm. I like, uh, yeah, I like figuring them out. But once I've got them figured out, then I really just have to force myself through them. I I think I, I agree with you. There's like a thing, I don't know if it's just experience or it's intuition or whatever, but I love when I see something and I have no idea how I'm going to do it, but I know I can do it. Like I know it can be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know we can figure this out. And then it's like sit down and decide I'm going to do this and then go check Twitter Yeah, and then get more coffee (laughs) and then talk to the cat and then talk to the other cat Mm -hmm. and then sit down and start doing it. And when I finally sit down and start doing it, it's like cue the eighties montage music, just like, you know, hours go by while I'm doing exactly what you described. Yeah. Experimenting with a hundred different things or whatever until I find something workable. And it's great. Next on the list here, I have you as the bouncy castle banner designer. Oh yeah. But that seemed to be a very short <laughs> like was it was there something embarrassing? I mean, were you are you were you laughed out of the business or uh is it, a restraining? Well, order? ironically, it was a one off. We did get flack for it after the fact. So <laughs> Basically, I was in the middle of a really, really rough job. And in the middle of it, when my son's birthday was coming up, and my wife called the Bouncy Castle people and said, Do you have like a rocket ship banner? That, you know, because they, they inflate the same Bouncy Castle. They got 48 different banners they put on the front. So you can get Ninja Turtles or SpongeBob or Barbie or who knows? No rockets. And he said, If you make me one, I'll print it out, put it up. Just can't have your kid's name on it or anything. It's got to be generic. So I did, and I made it in the flame because I'm just not good enough with other <laughs> software. Like I, you know, you start in Photoshop and you're like, "Ah, oh, God, this is." Dumb. 
This sucks. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I'm sitting there like emitting particles to do just like a still <laughs> of like rocket fire. And, you know, and so I made this big old bouncy castle banner. Sure enough, they printed it out. It was hilarious because, you know, I'm standing there in Griffith Park and the guys come out to inflate it and they unroll the Bouncy Castle banner. And I'm just like, I don't think they didn't know. They're just the guys who were hired to inflate it, right? Like they didn't know I designed it and I was so proud of it. And then one of the guys was like, it's a cool banner. And I was like, yeah. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I was stoked. And my son named all seven rockets that were on there. So it was good. Oh, that's awesome. It was a, it was a great day. Good times oh, we're having about to that. I'm clicking on it now. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, it was pretty cool. We'll right? have to make this the thumbnail. The thumbnail for the uh the, for the podcast. <laughs> wow. Done in flame. And a Soyuz and a Mercury Redstone and the Ariane and the was it a long march? Uh there's Ariane four, Ariane five, Soyuz, yeah, Saturn five, Mercury, and Gemini, I think. Nice. I think. I haven't looked at it in a while. And then the space shuttle right in the middle. Hell yeah. With the Pixar eyes on it, because he was really into the Pixar short where the space shuttle. Oh, yeah, there they are. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. I see the smiley face now. So, yeah. Oh, that's great. Uh, What got you into visual effects? Like as a kid or even in uh, the the, the animation stuff as a kid, were you, uh, Uh, I mean, were you into the movies or? Yeah, it was sort of back and forth. Like as a little kid, I liked Star Wars because I was born in the late 70s. So it sort of was just the air I breathed for a while. And then when I was off at college, so I went to college to become a Disney animator. Uh, I'd seen oh, cool. Beauty and the Beast in the theater and it really knocked my socks off. So I wanted to I wanted to do that. My sister knew one guy who went to this good college. I guess he told her or something that Disney recruits from there. That was the only school I applied to. <laughs> <laughs> and I got put on the wait list and uh, barely got in. But then the first year in college, uh, they re-released all the Star Wars movies in like the THX edition. They remastered them for VHS, which just sounds quaint now. (laughs) Not if you're making money. Yeah. So I bought those and then I bought the letterboxed (laughs) versions of them. And I I watched them so much. Like I can still, you can play me like 10 seconds of audio from the original trilogy. And I can tell you what movie it is and where it is in the movie. Like just from the audio clips. So I was really into it. So that's when I decided I wanted to go towards visual effects. Also, because it turns out Disney didn't really care if you could animate. They cared if you could draw animals. That was the trick to getting into Disney. You had to draw animals. So the guys who were on like the Disney track would literally just go to the zoo all the time and draw animals. And mm-hmm. It seemed kind of miserable. And I'm my illustration styles are not really, uh, well, they're like everything else. I'm just really lazy about stuff. So they're not, not particularly good. <laughs> and, yeah, so I got into animation, animation, and then computer animation, and that kind of stuck. And I did Maya a little bit. Maya 1 had just come out, so I learned that when I was a senior. And then I went out to California to uh, become some amazing Rich and CG animator, you know? Which, Man. Yeah. Did you have that like moment where you decided you were going to show your child the Star Wars movies in an order that you thought made sense. Yeah. He's not huge into narrative film, even today. When he was sort of expressing interest and stuff like that, we did sit down. So I showed him the despecialized original trilogy. Do you know about this? Is this the one where someone like, like people made this? Yes. Like out of like found footage? It's basically, maybe? yeah. So they, they took the best quality sources they could and then they would comp in 
if there was an improvement, a special edition improvement, they would comp in the next best, best source <laughs> that didn't have that change. And so they uh-huh. rolled the whole thing back to what it looked like when it was originally projected. I think up to and including removing the episode four title off the original crawl. Like it's really fastidious. And personally, I don't mind all the changes that they made to the sort of special editions, but there was a few that I thought were pretty egregious. Specifically, when Luke Skywalker jumps off the weather vane in Empire, mm-hmm. they gave him a big scream. So he like, you know, Vader's like, come on, join me. And he's like, no. And he just jumps off silently. That was always a really good moment because he had chosen to do that. But then they put this big, oh shit scream in there. And it was like, no, Luke (laughs) chose to do that. He shouldn't be scared right now. He did the most courageous thing he's ever done. And also he's only got one hand. Yeah. So it's little stuff like that bothered me. All this weird stuff. Like I didn't get too invested in the Han shot first thing. I mean, I don't think it was the best improvement, I think. So I showed him that the despecialized original trilogy. And then I showed him the first of the new ones. And then I showed him the second of the new one, which I love. I think that movie's tremendous. And then I told him there aren't any other movies. (laughs) 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 And he knows I'm lying, but I'm like, I'm not showing you the next one. It's so bad, dude. Like, you're better off just not knowing. Wow. I remember deciding after doing extensive and exhaustive and somewhat pathetic research that I was going to show my kids the movies in the following order. It was going to be four, five, one, no, four, five, two, three, six. All right. Like mm-hmm. forget about the Phantom Menace. It never happened. Yeah, fair. So it was going yeah, to be a new hope and then empire. And then we were going to like, you know, veer off for a couple episodes and go back for a little backstory and then go into return of the Jedi. It was the worst decision uh, I ever made as a parent. I regret it to this day because we sit down to watch a new hope and like 30 minutes in, I've lost my kids. Like they're just like, you know, one of them has their face just buried, like they're turned like into the couch, you know, mm-hmm. like, and the other one is just kind of like counting, I don't know, like counting cobwebs or something, you know, yeah. it's just like, you know, looking like, you know, around the room trying to count, you know, sconces or something. We get to Empire. Mm-hmm. And the big moment with Luke, I am your father, and the hand. And it never occurred to me. Well, they're laughing. Like, through the whole thing, they're laughing at it. Now, this was, I mean, what was that, 80? It was like 1980 or something that that came out. I was like six years old. Mm -hmm. So finding out that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father was like... It was a big deal. It was, I mean, it was a a transformative moment for me as a human being, right? As a six-year-old. They knew about it already. It wasn't some revelation to them. It's like in the lexicon, you yeah. know, like you you can watch like Family Guy or something and, or you can watch a cartoon. So everybody's walking up going like, Luke, I am your father. You yeah. know, it's not, it's not an unknown. And then, you know, not for nothing, but Mark Hamill's performance in that movie isn't really that great. Mm-hmm. You know, when you strip out the six-year-old like going, oh my God, I can't believe that this is actually happening. So my kids knew it was coming. They actually said it in unison. <laughs> With Darth Vader, and then they were laughing at at you know at Mark Hamill going, "No, that's not true. That's impossible." Yeah, and I realized like, oh God, I can't believe I did this. I should have just started at the beginning. I should show them the Phantom Menace. They have no issues with this. They they have no <laughs> no you know they're not mad. They about have no Jar-Jar prejudice. Binks they have no the- yeah. They're not mad about Jar Jar Binks exactly. I'm I'm sure that we went to go see. The, you know the J.J. Abrams, you know reboots or whatever, but I, I I don't I don't even know if they made it to all of them, and um and that's my Star Wars story. Yeah, uh, I so when the Phantom Menace came out, I was I was like the peak of my Star Warsy Star Warsiness. 
I bleached my hair white, grew a beard for the first time in my life, <laughs> and made this is well before cosplay was a thing. Made an Obi Wan Kenobi costume. Nice. Went to the nearest theater that had THX sound, which was in Framingham, Massachusetts. We had to go a week in advance to buy tickets. While we were waiting in line to buy tickets, a news crew came up. And the news reporter had seen it the night before. I don't know if this is day of or week before, but they had seen it. And, you know, there's 300 of us in line. And we're like, is it just the best thing you've ever seen? Is it completely amazing? I mean, is it like totally great, totally amazing? And I just remember she was like, well. <laughs> and we're like, you just, you just, you know, the, the standard like fan response, like you just, it's, it's just not for you. You just don't get it. Yes. You know, like, yeah. And I went to see it. I saw it four times opening day. I bought tickets to every single screening and just couldn't really process it. <laughs> you know, couldn't like, what did I see? There were moments that were definitely amazing, but was it, you know, it's just, it sort of, it calls everything into question at a certain point. I remember going opening morning you know, at like 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. I went with my wife. This is when we still lived in, in Manhattan. I went with my wife and, and a friend. We saw it at 7 a.m. And then I was just going to go to work, like right after that, you know, mm -hmm. go to my, my flame gig. We were all coming out of like, you know, the movie ended and we were all coming out of the theater, like looking at, <laughs> looking at each other. We saw it at the Ziegfeld, oh, you know, yeah. like talk about like, let's, let's find the, the biggest and best. Outside the, the the exits there to the Ziegfeld, there was a Fox News crew waiting to get fan reactions, mm -hmm. you know? to the thing so i was like i'm gonna get on tv <laughs> so i just went right up to the camera and i was like it was awesome <laughs> oh god yeah i'm not very good at transitional material no so well you know I'm but yeah star go... wars visual effects oh yes that's right that's where we you started know. that's what got you into it did you ever get a chance to work on a star wars movie no no why am I thinking I might? No, no. The closest I got is I got a tour of Industrial Light and Magic one time, and that was pretty sweet. Oh, I got a tour once too. Yeah, I mean that Maybe place. We, did we get a tour from the same guy? Yeah, it was probably Jay, right? Yeah, it was Jay. He's great, but yeah, he was like, yeah. "Come up, I'll show Thanks. you around." And I was like, "Oh, awesome!" And you know, you go in, you go into their screening room, which is like a full size theater. They just play mm -hmm. their demo reel, which is like, by the way, <laughs> you're crying. We're the best. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it was like right after like episode eight came out. So it was just like, you know, Transformers and Star Wars and just millions and millions of dollars on screen. And then you, you, know, you walk around the place and there's just all these cool models and things. And just like, yep. All the shower doors that had like yeah. the paintings on them hanging there. Jay took me into the cafeteria for lunch and we were just walking around. He's like, yeah, just go, you know, find something you want and go get it. And then you go up and pay for it or whatever. Mm -hmm. I was passing the salad bar and Dennis Muren was waiting in line to get a salad. <laughs> and I was like, should I? Yeah. Uh, should I? I mean, uh, <laughs> I feel like apocryphally, at least, they hire people who really love Star Wars, and that's how they can like underpay them. Is the the legend? <laughs> but it seems like if that actually does take place, then Dennis just has to get like fan swarmed all the time. Or there's like literally something we're hiring you. We know you know who Dennis Murin. Ignore him. Don't go up to yeah. him. Don't start talking to him about the abyss. <laughs> Don't ask him questions about Phil Tippett. Yeah. What's Phil Tippett really yeah. like? Phil awesome. Hey, hey Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> well, I wanted to be like, I mean, when I, I, I got into this because I remember watching the, I think it was called like From Star Wars to Jedi, The Making of a Saga. Mm -hmm. It was like a making of all the visual effects in Star Wars and it featured 
Dennis Murin. And so that's, I remember watching that going, that's what I want to do. That's who I want to be. Mm-hmm. And then I forgot about that until I was walking through the cafeteria yeah. one day. And you're like, but Jay was like, that's the, oh that's the guy. That's him. Yeah, dude. Uh, you did a stint at the mill. I did. I did. a. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I was growing unhappy with my situation in New Zealand. And at the time, the mill had discovered a need for far more flame artists than they currently had in the London office. So they sort of put out a, a big call. I applied. You know, I, I worked quite hard to get the job, or at least as hard as you can when you're entirely on the other side of the world. <laughs> and they hired me. And they're like, then I called my one British friend who I'd been working with, and he said, you don't know how lucky you are. Like, they're the mill. They just have to put the word out, and they get like 16 people. Like, you were really lucky to get this. And sure enough, I talked to my boss at the mill like two years later when we were down at the pub, and he was like, yeah, you were a real wild card. Nobody knew who you were. Nobody knew anybody who knew who you were. I'm glad you worked out. So yeah, how long I was, were you over in, in London? Yeah, I was in London. I got into London because my wife was born in 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 England, so she's a citizen, and so that allowed me to avoid all the sort of green card hassles and stuff like that. I don't think they would have imported me for money, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so that got us over to London, and that was great. I mean, London's just a wonderful city. How long were you there? Three years, almost to the day. That's great. Any highlights other than the Christmas video? You guys. Oh, God. Yeah. Though, if if anyone wants to have a, a treat, go go onto the forum and do a search for like, you know, the Christmas videos. Oh, yeah. The old milk Graphic. Christmas videos. Yeah. Adam Grint, he was staff at the mill before I had gotten there, but he had gone freelance. But somehow he would always manage to get booked back in right before Christmas. But producers would hate to have him on their jobs because he would just spend all night working on the Christmas video. I mean, he put so much time into those. And he'd rope in the whole staff. And so you're sitting there like doing comps on 5D footage and stuff like that. He's uh, He's got just ridiculous ideas and, you know, decided that because I was funny looking, I should feature him. <laughs> and I remember we went down to a very public place where they had a replica of Tatlin's Tower, that Russian constructivist architecture thing. In this big square in London, there's hundreds of people around. And he's wants me to sing this Russian song that he's found somewhere. So I'm just sitting there lip syncing. I've got, you know, like out of sight, I got like one earphone in and I'm just in this ridiculous outfit. It's like a, you know, it's December or November and I'm in like a white t-shirt and a weird tiny hat. (laughs) And I'm trying to sing this song and he's just, again, again, we're there for like hours. And he is like, the thing is, is I have a lot of anxiety about even pulling out a camera in public. So to be standing in front of a camera in public pretending to sing was just, very stressful. <laughs> well, it didn't come across that way on film. Well, that's good. That's good. You held it together. Excellent. But other than the Christmas, the Christmas video, any highlights of that experience? Uh, mostly I mean, like, just uh, the people. Had you worked at a place like that? Big? I mean, what was you know? That was the, I mean that big. Or, that was or, the or biggest that, job. High profile work. Or I mean, one thing I remember right in the beginning, my first sort of biggish job that they had thrown me. It was going pretty well, and then there was one sort of tricky shot. And we'd posted final, basically just got a note, like, that shot sucks. So I stayed up all night rebuilding it, adding all sorts of perspective and doing all these things. And building just this disaster of a batch setup. And then at about five or six in the morning, wrote an email to my assist explaining the setup and what needed to be done to get it across the line. And then I went home, I passed out, and I had a nightmare about the client calling up and saying they were never going to work with the mill again. And they were so thoroughly disappointed. It was like ultra realistic, like 
the adult <laughs> version of going to school naked kind of thing, just a mess. <laughs> and so I wake up and I, you know, take the tube back in in the afternoon, sort of come into the suite and everything's great. My assist like did everything great. There was like <laughs> everything. And I was just like, I am not used to this. I'm used to being like a one man band who lets people down. Like the fact that I had someone to just, you know, catch me as I was falling. It was, it was tremendous. And I just, yeah, I think my three years there were just outstanding. Like it was a real great group of people. I had a lot of fun there. Mm -hmm. That's great. And it was cool being at a big shop because I had never been at a big one. So, you know, now it's like, oh, you've got a CG department and there are just these utter killers of CG artists in there. Was it a tough adjustment for you or was it just like a kid in a candy store? Like, I'm, I've never been happier, that kind of thing. You know, there was, I'd say there was, you know, a little bit of me just worrying that I was um, completely out of my league because, you know, sort of my favorite visual effects spot ever done is that PlayStation mental wealth spot with the Chris Cunningham spot. It's a woman with a very distorted face talking about mm -hmm. living in your own world or something. And when I first saw it, I didn't know if it was visual effects or not. I thought they might have just found the person with the weirdest shaped skull they possibly could made a commercial. I mean, that was not unreasonable to think in the late 90s. <laughs> and then I found out later that it was visual effects and a guy named Barnsley at the mill did it. And, you know, he's just a guy who's there and he's like a legend. And there's all these guys who had done all kinds of spots that I had sort of admired. So there was a lot of sort of, you know, I had nothing to compare, you know, I was like, here, check out the, the local New Zealand uh, electronic store commercial I did. It's pretty sweet, you know, <laughs> or any of my weird title sequences. So it was, there was that concern of just not being up to par, but everyone there was super nice and never made me feel lousy. So eventually I just settled in and really kind of found my own place in there. So you said you were there three years. Three years. And then um, was your contract up and you and you had to come back or was it a visa thing? Or no. What, what, why'd you come back? What made you come back? My wife and I had had a kid in, in the three years. So we just decided it might be better if we moved back to California so that the kid could um, see his grandparents and aunts and uncles mm -hmm. with less than an eight hour flight. So I basically asked my supervisor in London, I was like, is this something that could happen? Could I get shipped to the LA office? And then, you know, there were all sorts of conversations. And then at a certain point, they were like, great, can you be here like tomorrow? And then it was just like, <laughs> boink. And then I was over it's, there for like another three years. Mm -hmm. And uh, as, as a VFX supervisor, like you were, I'm assuming you were mentoring younger artists, right? Like you were the leader of the team. Mm -hmm. Is that, did, did you enjoy that? I enjoy it in a non-structured way. I'm pretty shit at it in a structured way. When people have assigned me people to mentor, I've just I'm not good at it because I don't know what I should be doing about it. I don't know what lesson I should be teaching or what lesson I shouldn't be teaching. But I, it, I tend to be good when you're stuck in a room with me. So the people I would work with a lot who were my assists, I think learned a lot, or at least I liked being in the room with them. Um, mm -hmm. So I think I do better that way where I can sort of lead by example and talk people through things versus try to have some sort of curriculum or some other grand plan. I think I'm better in random doses, I guess. Gotcha. After you left the mill, uh, have you been freelance ever since? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was funny. You know, I left the mill and I've been pretty sheltered, you know, not really knowing 
much of anybody. And then I sort of popped out into the world and a couple of my friends called a couple of their friends. And I sort of, all of a sudden I had loads of freelance contacts and people were like, Oh, Andy Dill, we were looking to get you in. You know, Nice to finally meet you. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I've been floating around just freelancing. Yeah. I don't know. Were you hesitant? Were you, I mean, some people leave a, a staff job because they are burned out. Mm-hmm. Some people leave a staff job because they had a life change. Yeah. You know, whatever. You, you moved or right. your spouse got a job. Your kids are off, you know, moved, went off to college or something. Mm-hmm. Well, what was the, the the impetus for leaving? And then, you know, was it was it scary at all, like stepping into the unknown? Oh, it's always scary. I remember right before I left, but prior to me having decided to leave, I was telling a friend of mine how I had just secured a car loan and just bought a house, right? Those are the two big events in my life that year. And he goes, perfect time to go freelance. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've got all these regular bills now. Are you insane? And he goes, yeah, but you don't need to qualify for a loan ever again in your life. (laughs) Oh, my God. And he's right. And the funny thing is, it's like, that's what I sort of, you know, I was nervous because I didn't know that many people and stuff. But it's like, you get out there and there's work to be done. And if you're Oh, okay at it, you'll probably land on your feet. And it was just kind of funny. I Honestly, I was kind of like, why didn't I do this sooner? It was just nice to be kind of untethered, I guess. Mm-hmm. Go into a group for a while, do some jobs. Everybody's happy. I'll see you in a few months. It's nice to bounce around. Nice. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, I loved being a part of a big organization. I was a real company man for a while, probably to some detriment of my moral character. But... Um, <laughs> I liked having all the good things by the way. Company all buying. good things have the potential to be you know at the detriment of your, your moral character. Yeah. I, I digress, I'm sorry. Yeah. But you know, I liked being the mouthpiece for the mill. You know, I could go to Autodesk and be like, Me and the seventy other people who use your software in the building <laughs> would like this. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, I was probably no, I, no I'm not saying probably I was a bit I was a jerk to Autodesk. For various reasons, and I honestly regret a lot of them, but I like that those guys are still nice to me. Thickest skins in the business. They, I mean, they have to be. I mean, I, it's amazing. Just they either go on a retreat and just beat the shit out of like you know a stuffed flame artist or something, you know, like the uh, or or you just. It's like they all used to work on like submarines and just really actually intense jobs or something. So yeah. it's like when they're like, <laughs> and this is nothing. Yeah, these. Yeah. These guys down in California are screaming at me. Yeah. yeah, they're mad about where we put a button. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. This is fine. <laughs> I hope that's the case. I hope they just laugh Amazing. at our, our silly stresses. Pushing the pause button here. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk at all about how now you live in Vermont? I'd be or, happy to. Or, yeah. Or no? Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. yeah, it's not a secret anymore. Okay, I think I remember back in the beginning. Uh, it was a secret. Was. I can tell you about it being a secret. I'm happy to tell. tell oh, that let's story. do that. Okay, so uh, let's see. The pandemic hits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> if you remember, oh, if you no, I, do, I do remember. I was working at Danny Yoon's shop, Mister Wolf, and it was like none of us knew what to do. But there was one day where we had all we were spaced apart now, you know. So like everyone was sort of at least six feet apart, but there were a couple of us in one room. And I was eating, I don't know, peanuts or something. I got a cough, and I just remember someone <laughs> running in with like just. <laughs> Like double barreling bleach spray ready to just like hose me down. Because like, this was like, you know, this was when they were like, you don't need masks. It was like really like weird early days. And, you know, I felt like I was sort of Nostradamus when I said, oh, yeah, they're not going to shut school down just for a week. They're shutting it down. (laughs) Hold this space, you know, thinking I, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, God, that was such a weird time. 
my son and I used to go over to the parking lot of the pool that was near our house. And it was just because nobody was even out on the streets, right? Like the playgrounds were closed. So we would just kick the soccer ball around, my wife, my son and I, in this empty parking lot. It was great. There was like a real nice moment, but uh, at least, you know, outside of all the terrible stuff. But yeah, I remember. And then then I feel like work was interesting for me because everything fell off. Like after I, at least for me, but I had landed a job that kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed. It was like a movie job. And it was awesome because they were finally ready to go once the pandemic hit. So I could, I was going to do that work from home anyway. So that sort of carried me through summer. And then, you know, the fall hits and everybody's got commercials to do and they figured out all the problems and it's just go, go, go. So yeah, uh, then, you know, because my son was totally remote, my wife and I started talking about, well, we should just go somewhere for a bit because he's remote, you're remote. Like, let's just go have a big vacation somewhere. That'd be fun. I was like, yeah. And then we were, we've always talked about moving to Vermont because that's where I grew up. So we were like, oh, let's see if we can rent a place in Vermont for a month. We'll drive out there. It'll be fun. And we found a place and it was like super close to my little sister's house. And we booked it. And the guy was like, well, I can book it, but there's another guy who wants it for three months. Could you do three months? And we're like, yeah, sure. All right, great. Yeah, great. So we book it for three months. We book it for like October, November, December. We're just going to go out to Vermont for three months. And then randomly out of nowhere, my realtor calls up and is like, I don't know if you're thinking about this. It's a great time to sell your house. <laughs> and, you know, my wife and I talk about it, basically come to the decision like, yeah, it probably is. And so we basically spent like a month just getting the house ready for sale, getting everything out of the house, shipping everything, and then figuring, well, we got a three-month runway because we already rented a place in Vermont try to buy a place in Vermont when we get there. And, uh, you know, and while this is going on, people are, you know, booking me into October and all that. And I remember saying, okay, I'm going on vacation to Vermont for a bit, which was true at the time. But the thing, cool thing about Vermont up in Burlington, they've got gigabit internet for everyone in town. So you can get just crazy fast internet. So I said, I'm going to be in Vermont, but I'm going to have all my gear, and super fast internet, should be fine. So when he said, sure, sure, yeah, we'll hire you from Vermont. So I'd go here, set up my flame, do all that. And and the work goes great, you know, deliver a couple of commercials that way for a couple of clients. Mm -hmm. And then we also buy a house. <laughs> so then people are calling around again. And like, are you still in Vermont? And I remember telling, uh, telling, I think it was somebody at Method. I was like, yeah, and just so you know, uh, I... I live here now. <laughs> I've moved. I own a house here. And they were like, okay, we can figure that out. And yeah, you know, all the, all the old people that I used to work with, uh, they still call and still like hiring me. Maybe that'll dry up at some point. It's been really good. And again, you know, like I can re remote control computers in, in Burbank mm -hmm. and it's fine. It was actually... It's crazy. Like the thing that blows my mind the most is I got the best internet I could at my house in Burbank. And it is nicer to remote control a computer from Burlington, Vermont, that is located in Southern California than it was from Burbank. Just because the, the gigabit, it's like gig up, gig down. It's cartoonishly fast. Mm -hmm. I love it. And it's just the internet. It's some sort of citywide thing they put in. It's a beautiful thing. Well, this has been great, man. Yeah. I've enjoyed it Thank as well. You. It's been great getting to know you. I know. This I'm, is that, I'm really glad this is that drink we've we have never had. so much Star Wars in common because oh my God. I, a lot of my life has orbited around Star Wars, I'm, which is funny because then people ask me about The Mandalorian or something. I'm like, I haven't seen it. <laughs> you haven't seen The Mandalorian? No. 
I watched a half of the first episode and I found the dialogue wanting. I think my problem was there's a scene early on when somebody needs to be a negotiator mm-hmm. and they're terrible at it. And I hate that because I think a good negotiation scene is fascinating, but most of the time nobody can do it because really the negotiator is only as good as the writer is at negotiating, right? Like you can't really, Mm -hmm. there's no trick to it. You need to understand how to create the problem and how to solve it in a cool way. And I got really mad about that and then didn't bother to watch it. Didn't even get as far as Baby Yoda was the end of the first episode. Wow. Wow. All right. I also don't like the design of his ship. Okay. Wow, I didn't think we were going to go there. Yeah, sorry. Favorite Star Wars toy from when you were a kid? I never had it, but I think the Millennium Falcon is undefeated in design. I think Mm -hmm. it is just the best, coolest, most original spaceship ever. Yep. Yeah, I didn't have it. Uh, Rodney, who lived two houses down from me, and everybody had a kid named Rodney who lived two houses down from Mm -hmm. them, but Rodney who lived two houses down from me had the Millennium Falcon. Yeah, I think my friend Adrian had it. And it was, yeah, just the coolest thing. And I have a cousin, I at the time when he told me about this, I thought he was crazy. Because he was like, rather than spend my money on like the Death Star playset or the Millennium Falcon, I'm going to buy a lot of like Stormtrooper figures. And it was like, why would you ever do that? Until I went over to his house and I saw that he had like a legion, <laughs> you know, of Stormtroopers. <laughs> and it was like, oh, this is great. That's awesome. Yeah, I had I had like three stormtroopers. All right, my friend. Well, God bless. Stay warm. Yeah, it's it's warmer and, today. Uh, I walked outside. It was sunny and twenty degrees, and I was like, man, it's nice out. Oh, nice. Yeah, I think it got up to twelve here. You guys got a bunch of snow, right? Yes. Yeah, we got none of that. I was mm. mad about it. Ah, uh, well, soon. Yeah, February is just around the corner. I know. I know. Well, thank you for uh, for always putting a smile on my face when I read your your uh, your your contributions on the forum. Well, uh, you have a dry sense of humor <laughs> that is uh, that has a you know a tendency sometimes to go dark, and I love it. I right. love 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 it. As long as it's seen as humorous, I think. Uh, oh, okay. absolutely, it's the best. All right, man. Well, thank you much. You're welcome. Everyone knows that Boris Effects makes the best plugins in the business: Mocha, Sapphire, Silhouette Paint, Continuum and the new optics. You can save 15% on all of Boris Effects plugins, either standalone or subscription, by using the code LOGIC-15 at checkout. That's capital L, lowercase o-g-i-k, dash one five at checkout. This episode of the Logic Podcast is brought to you by Cinesis.io. To find out more about their remote workflow solutions, check them out at Cinesis.io. See you next time.